Beyond Barbarossa, Episode 38, Operation Uranus. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, podcasting from the Redbeard Studio on traditional Anishinaabe Algonquin territory, also called Ottawa, Canada. And I'm sorry if I sound kind of weird today, but uh, as you can probably tell, I'm working through a cold. It's almost over, I hope. But my apologies in advance for any weird sounds that get through recording and editing. Anyway, on with the story. Last episode of this podcast looked at how the fighting in Stalingrad in the summer and fall of 1942 devolved into a bloody grind. The Germans were determined to take all of the city, which was stretched out along the western bank or the right bank of the Volga River. And the Red Army was determined to hang on to it. Neither side counted the cost of this effort, either in resources, damage, or human lives. This battle, this situation, became legendary for Russian soldiers and officers sacrificing themselves in astounding numbers. They carried mines under their arms. They threw grenades even when their arms were broken. They called down artillery strikes on themselves when they ran out of ammunition. Anything to stop and kill the Nazi enemy. Both leaders, Hitler and Stalin, were determined to hold Stalingrad. Stalin's famous order, not one step back, led to thousands of summary executions of Red Army soldiers who ran away, who surrendered, and even those who just retreated in good faith to what they thought were better positions. There were many stories of Red Army soldiers trying to surrender to the Germans, only to be shot from behind by their own comrades. Hitler also ordered the 6th Army, under General Friedrich Paulus, to take the city at any cost. Hitler believed that Paulus had the resources he needed to accomplish this. You know, in the summer of 1942, after all, the 6th was the largest and the best equipped army the Germans had in the southern part of the Eastern Front. And it was supported by Hermann Hoth's 4th Panzer Army, as well as Wolfram von Richthofen's 8th Air Corps with fighters, medium bombers, and the much-feared Stuka dive bombers. In addition, Italian, Romanian, and Hungarian armies defended the flanks, flanks that extended hundreds of miles back west along the banks of the Don River and south across the Kuban Steppe. While the Panzers had swept the Red Army aside on their mad dash across the steppe, which is another word for prairie, so expansive, flat grasslands, the urban warfare in Stalingrad halted them. The Germans' heavy, repeated aerial and artillery bombardments destroyed just about every building in the city and turned the giant factory complexes into ruins of shattered concrete and twisted metal. Ironically, that also created thousands of hiding places for defenders, and the Red Army took advantage of this. They dug in machine guns and even stationary tanks among the rubble. The snipers of Stalingrad became another legend 
of the Second World War. Why did Stalingrad prove such a challenge for the Germans? After all, they had taken many other cities since launching Operation Barbarossa in 1941, a year and a half earlier than the action described in this episode. Cities like Smolensk, Minsk, Kiev, Kharkiv, Rostov-on-Don, on and on and on. So it's not urban fighting that provides a satisfactory explanation for the Germans' difficulty in taking Stalingrad. So what was it? Well, part of the answer lies in those long extended flanks, greatly overextended supply lines really. The Germans were more than a thousand miles from the border where they had started in June 1941, and even farther from Germany itself, the source of all their supplies, weapons, armor, ammunition, food, and warm clothing. It took a very long time for anything to reach the front where it was needed. And the men on the front needed a lot. Here's another challenge that the German armies faced. They had a huge profusion of different kinds of armor, weapons, vehicles, even tanks. Yes, they had the Panzer III's and IVs, but also Czech tanks and captured Soviet tanks. And the German arms industry was not really into mass production like the Americans or like the Soviets, whose factories had been built 20 to 30 years earlier with American consultants and expertise following American models. Instead, hundreds of independent little workshops built parts and assemblies. This made building a replacement panzer time-consuming and expensive compared to their counterparts on the other side of the war. It also meant that the Germans needed a huge array of different kinds of spare parts and repair or repair pieces that would come from a profusion of different sources, some of which just were no longer available because they destroyed the producers. By the fall of 1942, the Germans had lost a lot of their manpower and weapon power. As mentioned in earlier episodes, the drive across the steppe clogged the fine German engines with dust. So if you go back to episode 32, author and historian David Stahl described how much engine oil the Panzers were using in a futile effort to flush dust out of the engines and drive chains of those fine, well-engineered German tanks. Oil, which was in short supply. So the Germans needed to replace tank engines as well as thousands of other spare parts, parts that would take weeks or months to arrive over those long extended supply lines. And every mile of those supply lines was vulnerable to partisan attack. Here's another factor to consider. By 1942, even before that, the German army was shrinking. They had started Operation Barbarossa with 3 million men, which is an astounding number. This is in addition to the armies in France, occupying Europe from the North Sea to the Aegean, and the corps fighting in North Africa. Over the year of fighting in the Eastern Front, the Germans had lost more men and equipment than they could replace. They just did not have the reserves of manpower to make up for the casualties, and oil was always in short supply. 
In fact, the need for oil was the stated objective of Case Blue, the summer 1942 drive to the Caucasian oil fields. Not only did that operation fail, at least in terms of secure oil supplies, but then Hitler had changed the objectives in mid-strategy and ordered the 6th Army and the 4th Panzer Army to take Stalingrad. By the fall, many German officers were thinking it had been a trap. So let's look at the supply situation on those extended flanks. The reserves defending the Don River's right bank, the 6th Army's northern flank, was the 48th Panzer Corps. This included the 14th and 22nd Panzer Divisions and the 1st Romanian Panzer Division. Altogether, they had fewer than 100 working modern tanks. One division, the 14th, had lost the most of this group, and their tanks were just light Skodas from Czechoslovakia. No match for the Red Army's T-34. In fact, none of the Panzers, at this point the Panzer 3s and 4s, were any match for the Soviet T-34. The 22nd Panzer Division had also been immobile for weeks by the fall of 1942 because of a lack of fuel. Can't move a tank without fuel. So while the tank sat idle, mice crawled inside to make nice cozy homes as the temperature outside plummeted. And you know what mice do when they get inside an engine? That's right, they chew up the electrical insulation, rendering the tanks immobile, even if they had fuel. And with those long supply lines I talked about, there was no way to get new wires to the front. While the Germans are facing this pro these problems, the Red Army, Red Armies are growing. Whole armies are being transferred from the farthest regions of the Soviet Union. Lendlease as well is in full flow by now, bringing in raw materials and supplies. Arms production from Soviet factories, the ones that have been disassembled and moved farther east back at the beginning of the war, are now, they're running at full capacity and they're growing. I mentioned last episode that the German chief of staff, Franz Halder, reported to Hitler in the summer of 1942 that while the Germans were producing 500 tanks per month, which seems pretty impressive, the Soviets were producing 1,200 per month, so more than double. Hitler screamed that number was impossible. He was partly right. The Soviet factories that had been moved and reassembled east of the Ural Mountains beyond the reach of the German bombers were not producing 1,200 tanks a month. No, they were producing 11,000 tanks per month. And by the end of 1942, they'd hit 13,000 tanks per month. And the Germans were losing more than 500 tanks per month. But it seems Hitler believed his own bullshit. So he insisted, take Stalingrad. Meanwhile, back in Germany, he told his adoring public, they were still mostly adoring him back there, 
that the Wehrmacht, and thus he himself, had already achieved his goal in the East. Quote, I wanted to reach the Volga, to be precise, at a particular spot, at a particular city. By chance, it bore the name of Stalin himself. But don't think I marched there just for that reason. It was because it occupies a very important position. I wanted to capture it and, you should know, we are quite content. We have as good as got it. There are only a couple of small bits left. Some say, why aren't they fighting faster? That's because I don't want a second Verdun. Aside, as Verdun was the biggest battle of World War I, which led to huge losses for German as well as French forces. Back to the quote. I don't want a second Verdun and prefer to do the job with small assault groups. Time is of no importance. No more ships are coming up the Volga, and that is the decisive point. End quote. Hitler claimed that the 6th Army was preventing Lend-Lease aid from the southern route through Iran and over the Caspian Sea. If true, this would be a problem. But that was not the only route for Lend-Lease, not even the largest. If you'd like some more details on the Lend-Lease program and how it worked, uh, go back to episode 32 of Beyond Barbarossa. But get to the end of this episode first. Now, as described last episode, in late September, the 6th Army made one more push to reach the banks of the Great River Volga. And what a push. It started with an artillery bombardment in the factory area of the north of the city. Both attackers and defenders described this as a hurricane of fire. But the Soviet defense was stubborn in equal measure. Reinforcements kept crossing the Volga in the face of this German bombardment and machine gun fire. The casualties on both sides shocked the Germans. They should have shocked the Soviets. Meanwhile, while this is going on, the Soviet high command, the Stavka, was making plans, not just making plans, they were operationalizing plans to relieve Stalingrad and defeat the Germans in this area. This plan was called Operation Uranus. Georgi Zhukov, Stalin's right hand and the chief of the military command, was moving armies around and creating new brigades, regiments, and divisions, and then training them under fire. The plan, to strike across the Don River well to the west of Stalingrad, where the weaker Romanian and Italian armies defended the flanks having enough distance from the strong, well-equipped professional and experienced 6th Army in Stalingrad would prevent them from counterattacking before the Red Armies could begin a huge encirclement. Now, that's what we covered last episode. So now, let's get into how Operation Uranus played out. But before we do that, it's time for our regular feature, What Else is Happening in the Second World War? On November 1st, the Allies, mostly Commonwealth forces here, broke through in the Second Battle of El Alamein in North Africa. By November 3rd, Rommel's Africa Corps was in full retreat, and the battle was over. 
About a week later, the Americans invaded Vichy France-controlled Morocco and Algeria in Operation Torch. At the same time, French resistance fighters neutralized Vichy forces in Algiers. The Americans took the port of Oran, Algeria, by November 10th, when the Vichy French forces signed an armistice with the Americans that day in Oran, the Germans invaded Vichy France, the mainland France that they had kind of allowed to be an occupied collaborationist regime. This action, though, effectively ended this pretend government's authority. Meanwhile, the British forces under Montgomery began sweeping west across Libya from the Egyptian border. In one day, they took Bardia. Then the next day, they got the much-struggled-over Tobruk. By November 18, they took Benghazi. In the Pacific, the Battle of Guadalcanal between the American and Japanese navies began. Both sides would lose significant ships, cruisers, and battleships, But by the time the naval side of that battle was over, the Americans controlled the seas around the island, which was east of New Guinea. I have described the summer of 1942 as the high point for the Axis in the Second World War which means that after that, things started to go the other way. Or as Churchill put it, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. End quote. Love him or hate him, you have to admit, Churchill is a great source of pithy quotes. So at that point, now that we've covered what we've come up to, and what else is going on in the war, I think we need to take a short break. This is Beyond Barbarossa, the first and so far only English language podcast that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. And by now, you know I'm Scott Burry, writer and narrator. This podcast's only source of funding right now is you through Patreon. So if you like this podcast, why not subscribe or follow or whatever your preferred podcasting platform calls it. And please consider supporting it at any amount through Patreon. Visit beyondbarbarossa.ca and click on the Patreon link in the banner. Thanks. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. And all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War.
Thanks for coming back. We're now at the winter of 1942, November on the Eastern Front of the Second World War. By the beginning of November, Paulus's attack on the factory district in Stalingrad petered out without having accomplished much. Both sides, both the Germans and the Soviets, had to prepare for winter. It was coming and it was coming hard. For the Soviets, this largely meant dealing with the deadly grinding ice on the Volga, which made crossing, which was necessary to supply and support the few forces they had clinging to the remnants of Stalingrad, even more dangerous. The Germans went to a defensive posture and they issued winter uniforms. This included warmer clothing. They had learned something from the previous winter, but Hitler insisted that this posture would be an, uh, quote, active defense, which meant no retreat. In fact, lots of smaller scale attacks. The Germans who weren't in the city of Stalingrad itself dug caves and bunkers into the steppe. Soldiers crept into the outskirts of the city to steal timbers from destroyed houses so they could use these to reinforce the underground shelters they had made. The Soviets had a very different approach. Some units got warm white suits, which they could use as camouflage for raids on German and Axis units on the steppe. But as temperatures plummeted through November with freezing rain, both Germans and Soviets suffered. In fact, frostbite reached almost epidemic levels in Red Army forces, especially since the winter uniforms did not always arrive on time. On the Kalnik Stap, south of Stalingrad, 14 men in one day froze to death while on horseback. Another cavalry unit lost 35 horses to the cold in one day. So now it's time to look at Operation Uranus itself and how Georgi Zhukov and Andrei Yarmenko's great plan worked out. Their plan involved bringing in over a million men, men new to this part of the conflict, five new tank armies, and each tank army was roughly equivalent to a German panzer corps. Operation Uranus would be a classic pincer operation, but on a scale seldom seen before, if ever. So rather than take on the powerfully equipped and experienced and trained Germans head on, as they'd been doing up to this point, they decided to strike the comparatively weaker, less equipped and trained Romanian and Italian support armies west and south of the city itself. And then meet up in the rear and encircle the 6th Army. They took great pains to keep this operation secret, but there's just no way you can move a million men, along with all their tanks and airplanes and artillery and everything else an army needs, without something being noticed. The first to notice were the Romanians, who were guarding the Don River west of Stalingrad. And they saw a buildup of Red Army forces across the Don River from them. And they reported this to the Germans. Even Wolfram von Richthofen, commander of the Luftflotte, or air fleet supporting the 6th Army, noticed these preparations. One day he wrote in his journal, quote, On the Don, 
the Russians are resolutely carrying on with their preparations for an offensive against the Romanians. End quote. But uh, the German generals dismissed these warnings. First, they reasoned that the most likely place for a Soviet winter offensive this year would be in the Urzhev-Vyazma area, west of Moscow, therefore far, far to the north. After all, the Germans had a huge salient there, and the Soviets had tried to attack it repeatedly during the summer. Secondly, the Germans still did not believe that the Red Army had the strength or the numbers left for a major counterattack. The, cons- the consensus for months, for a year actually by this time, was that the communist state was barely clinging on to life as the Red Army was barely clinging on to the western bank of the Volga in Stalingrad. One more push was all they needed to achieve their goal of holding all of Stalingrad. One more. Okay, one one more. Okay, one more then. And again. Yeah. Some of this attitude was down to sheer German military chauvinism. After all, the German army was the best, the most professional, the best equipped, the most technologically advanced in the world. But a lot of this attitude comes down to just fear of Hitler. Hitler had said the Soviet Union would fall apart. All they had to do, he said, back a year and a half earlier, was kick in the door and the whole house would come crashing down. And they had kicked in the door and then kicked at the walls and kicked again and again. Surely it's going to come crashing down. Any time now. The thing was, Hitler was willing and able to fire anyone who disagreed with him. He had already done that with Guderian. One more thing. Despite all the advice from the experienced professional strategists, all the generals who knew all about military things, Hitler had been right, mostly. Not always. The, the Germans had failed to take Moscow, after all. But they were besieging Leningrad. They had taken Kiev, Kharkiv, the Crimea, all of Ukraine, and had now reached the slopes of the Caucasus on the edge of Asia. From 35,000 feet, things looked good for Germany in 1942. But when you come down to ground level, anywhere on that immense front, stretching from the Baltic to the Black Sea and beyond, you see a different picture. With the most technologically advanced army in history, stranded in snow on a prairie a thousand miles from home without enough fuel or food or warm clothes or shelter, where the officers are still denying that the enemy is about to launch the biggest counteroffensive ever. There were some dissenting sensible voices. For example, the man I mentioned before, Wolfram von Richthofen, said, When, I wonder, will the attack come? The attack came on 19th November, 1942. On the night before, 
Soviet sappers wearing white uniforms had crept through the snow to remove anti-tank mines. The sun rose over the Don River on a thick white mist that obscured targets. But 3,500 Soviet guns, howitzers, mortars, and Katusha rocket launchers had prepared and aimed days before. At 7.30 a.m., that massed artillery opened up in two sectors on that northern flank of the Axis forces. Even 30 miles away, the German invaders felt the earth shake as the shells hit. These sectors, a hundred miles west of Stalingrad, where the Red Army held portions of the right bank of the Don, sectors defended by divisions of the 3rd Romanian Army, an army under-equipped and under-trained, especially compared to the German 6th and 4th Panzer Armies. After a solid hour of bombardment, the Soviet artillery increased their range to hit the second line of defense as the Red Army infantry advanced. At first, the Romanians were able to repel them, and then the T-34s of the Soviet 5th Tank Army moved in. Without enough anti-tank weapons, the Romanians did not stand a chance. Many threw down their weapons and fled. In mid-morning, the mist cleared enough for some Soviet air armies to join the attack, unopposed by the Luftwaffe. The thinking is, among historians now, that the conditions with the mist and the low visibility were just not good enough for the German air commanders to allow their pilots to fly. By noon, the Soviet 4th Tank Corps penetrated the Romanian lines near the town of Kletskaya, south of the Don and over 100 kilometers west of Stalingrad, as the crow flies. They were followed by the 3rd Guards Cavalry Corps, Cossacks mounted on shaggy ponies and carrying their submachine guns. Half an hour later, two more tank corps smashed through other Romanian defenses 30 miles or 50 kilometers farther west. Still, senior German officers did not take the situation seriously. News of the attack did not reach 6th Army headquarters, itself more than 50 kilometers west of Stalingrad, until 9.45 a.m., two hours, more than two hours after the beginning of the attack. And it took another hour for headquarters to order the 48th Panzer Corps, that much depleted force I mentioned before, so to send that to go support the Romanians. But their efforts were disorganized. And anyway, they only had those light tanks. And these tanks just were not designed for fighting on a snowy steppe. Their narrow tracks slipped on ice and sank into snowdrifts. The T-34s, the Soviet tanks with their wider tracks, their heavy cannons and heavier armor, swept farther and farther south. For them, the greatest danger seems to have been the lack of visibility from the mist and the snow, which hid dips and gullies on the steppe. As the day wore on, the freezing mist developed into a snowfall, and then a blizzard. Dark had fallen by the time the Red Army's 1st Tank Corps met the depleted 48th Panzer Corps. Fighting in the dark, says says historian and author Anthony Beevor, was chaotic. Meanwhile, the Red Army launched attacks, some major, some smaller, all along the front, along the Don, in Stalingrad itself, and down the Volga, along the southern flanks. In particular, the 65th Red Army attacked in the Great Bend of the Dawn, keeping pressure on the Germans' northern flank. You can see this all much more clearly in the maps I've put on the website. 
By 5 p.m. it was completely dark. This is late November, after all. The Red Army tanks had advanced over 20 miles, and the Germans ordered a new defensive line to protect their rear. But they still didn't grasp the full implications of this attack. They were worried that the Soviets would cut off their rail line for supplies. They couldn't imagine that the Soviets actually planned this great encirclement. It took until 10 p.m. for the generals to order the cessation of activity in Stalingrad and focus on this new threat in their rear. Why did the Germans take so long to react? Well, as usual, the answer comes down to management. The attacks were outside of Stalingrad, so beyond general Paulus's responsibility. He could have said, not my job. I doubt he did. But at the same time, he did not have the authority to order the units in his rear to do anything. He had to ask his superiors in Army Group B to do so. Meanwhile, Army Group B had to wait for orders from the Fuhrer, who ordered all available panzers westward to block the Soviet attack. Not a bad idea at first glance, but it left the southern flank wide open. The second Soviet pincer began moving the next day, 20th November 1942. It was basically a replay of the day before, with sappers removing anti-tank mines overnight, and then the morning dawning on another impenetrable freezing mist. This forced the commander of the Stalingrad Front, General Andrei Yeremenko, to delay that opening bombardment to as late as 10 a.m. But when he did start, he didn't hold back on the mortars, artillery, and katyushas. They fired for three quarters of an hour before raising their range. That's when the infantry and tanks moved in south of this town called Bekatovka, which you can see on the map, it's just south of Stalingrad itself. And again, they hit the relatively weaker Romanian forces, the Romanian 4th Army. And 40 kilometers or 25 miles farther south, the 4th Mechanized Corps and the 4th Cavalry Corps hit the junction of the Romanian 1st and 18th Infantry Divisions. According to historical sources, the Romanians fought bravely, but they were hopelessly undermanned and under-equipped. One regiment had just a single anti-tank gun to defend their sector. But here, the Soviet forces were also struggling with shortages of fuel and food, unlike their counterparts on that northern flank. Part of that was down to geography. Unlike in that northern arm of the operation, in the south, they had Getting supplies to the front meant crossing the icebound Volga. Very dangerous. So by the second day of the offensive, so we're at the 21st of November, the 157th Rifle Division had run out of bread and other food. Ambulances were commandeered to deliver supplies. And that meant that the wounded were left on the snowy steppe. Still, according to all reports, morale among the Red Army was very high. They were finally pushing the invaders back. And even though the German 29th Motorized Division of the 4th Panzer Army, there in the south, did successfully counterattack in that southern sector for one day, then they had to double back to protect the northern flank. So there's a lot of confusion in the German rear. 
with units dashing one way and then the other. They still didn't quite, quite grasp the threat from this pincer movement. On the northern side, after reducing the 22nd Panzer Division to the size of a single company, the Red Army swung from directly south toward the southeast. You'd think that the Germans would begin to get it at this point, but no. As late as the 21st of November, the third day of the operation, 6th Army Headquarters received, quote, not unfavorable reports, end quote, about the situation. The next day, after sending the panzers from Stalingrad to fight off the assault from the north, Paulus and his chief of staff, General Arthur Schmidt, flew south for a meeting with Hermann Hott, the commander of the 4th Panzer Army. As they flew, the staff at the headquarters in Golubinsky burned records, stores, and unserviceable airplanes and other equipment to keep them out of Red Army hands. In other words, Paulus had decided to retreat. But then Hitler's order arrived. Quote, Sixth Army stand firm in spite of danger of temporary encirclement. End quote. Thus, the Fuhrer doomed the Sixth Army. Oops, spoiler alert. But really, if you're listening to this podcast, I'll bet you know how the Battle of Stalingrad turned out. The T-34s heading southward from the dawn aimed for the town of Kalach, the same town where, just three months earlier, the 6th Army had surrounded eight Soviet rifle divisions and destroyed 1,000 tanks, 750 guns, and had taken 50,000 prisoners, then crossed the Don to charge on Stalingrad. In November, this little town on the Don River's southwest flow was the winter home for German transportation and maintenance operations. And those units had no idea of the disaster about to hit them from two sides. To capture the temporary bridge at Kalach over the Don, the Red Army's 26th Tank Corps sent two captured German tanks and a reconnaissance vehicle up to the guards on the bridge. Effectively in disguise, they got close enough and opened fire, killing the guards and opening up the way for their comrades. By mid-morning on 21st November, they had driven the Germans out of Kalach. These units fled east toward Stalingrad. Irony upon irony. The next day, 23rd November, the two Soviet spearheads converged, the 4th and 26th Tank Corps coming down from the north and the 4th Mechanized Corps up from the south. The Red Army had surrounded the 6th Army, its remaining Axis minions, and the city of Stalingrad, setting the stage for what became known as the Stalingrad Kessel, the cauldron of as many as 300,000 Axis soldiers in an area 50 kilometers east to west by 40 kilometers north to south. The remnants of the 6th Army and the 4th Panzer Army, 4th, 4 Infantry Corps, a Panzer Corps, and the survivors of two Romanian divisions and a Croatian regiment were all that was left of the proud army that had taken most of Stalingrad. Yes, 
the Germans were surrounded. A huge encirclement, equivalent to the great encirclements the Germans accomplished in the first months of Operation Barbarossa in Belarus and Ukraine. But no worry for the Germans, right? Hermann Goering, the overfed, the overfed head of the Luftwaffe, assured the German high command that his planes could supply the 6th Army by air. After all, they had done so just a few months earlier at Rzhev. Right? How hard could it be? So, Hitler forbade Paulus from attempting a breakout. In other words, a retreat from this untenable, unendurable position. As for Goering's boast, his promise really, to airlift everything the 6th Army needed to survive the winter in Stalingrad? Well, Paulus and his staff summed things up and told Goering what they needed. Food, fuel, ammunition, uniforms, spare parts, reinforcements, and evacuations of the wounded. All amounting to 700 tons of material per day. They were supporting 300,000 soldiers. The Luftwaffe could not manage even half that amount. And then remember in the what else is happening in the war section when I mentioned Operation Torch, how the Americans, British, Canadians, and Free French had landed over had landed over 100,000 men in North Africa and how Rommel had retreated at the Second Battle of El Alamein. Whole Luftwaffe units were quickly diverted from the Eastern Front to North Africa in response. So instead of 700 tons per day, or even the absolute minimum of 500 tons, the Luftwaffe managed to bring in 85 tons per day of supplies. There was one day where they brought in 262 tons, less than half the required daily amount. They also, to their credit, managed to evacuate some 29,000 wounded. But this would not solve the problem. So here we are, the turning point of the war. Not just on the Eastern Front, but overall in Europe, Africa, the Atlantic, and the Pacific. As Churchill said, not the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. And that's a good point to end this episode. So come back in two weeks when we'll look at, no, not Stalingrad. We've been concentrating on Stalingrad a lot. And that's a weakness I find a lot of World War II histories histories have. They focus on one story without providing the overall context of what else is going on in the war at the same time right? These overlapping operations in a truly world-spanning war. Yes, the Battle of Stalingrad was happening at the same time as fighting in North Africa, as Operation Torch, as the German occupation of the misguided Vichy sections of France, as the Battle of Guadalcanal and Cocada Trail are taking place, as the Americans begin organizing the Manhattan Project. And as important battles take place elsewhere all along the vast eastern front so let's come back in two weeks when we'll look at something else on that front the important battle of the autumn of 1942 called operation mars thank you for listening 
If you find I've made any errors, please let me know. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Please reach out if you have any comments, questions, something to add, something to say about this conflict, about your, possibly your family's involvement, your own understanding of the war. And to help buttress that understanding of the progress of the war, take a look at the maps and photos I put on the website and the webpage for this episode. Get to that from beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. Click on the podcast button in the banner. I want to thank everyone who supported the podcast through Patreon. Remember, until all Ukrainian refugees can return home safely, your financial support goes to charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you like this episode, please consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating, an honest rating, a candid rating, whatever you feel. Put it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That really helps spread the word to others interested in history. As always, the original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. And I'm Scott Burry. Till next time, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.